Today, Dr. Patrick will be speaking on the power of connection with self and others. And on behalf of our spiritual community, we extend a warm welcome to all of our first-time visitors, to all the participants in this morning's celebration, and to those who show up here or there at any time. You're all welcome. And please join us for 30 seconds as we ground ourselves in silence. quite enough love for all the world and in this very room there's quite enough joy for all the world and there's quite enough joy and quite enough power to walk through our every Spirit, one spirit is in this very room, in this very room, in this very I invite you to just notice your next breath. Allow that breath to take you completely into your body and the next breath deeper so that that energy field that you are is not only in your head but your heart and your core. With each breath, deeper, more connected. And then moving that energy down into your feet and down into the earth. Grounding ourselves beautifully and wonderfully in this moment. That connection, that, that physiological activity of directing our energy is our opportunity, always. And so what I invite you to join me in is directing us in this idea. But not only to follow my words, but follow the consciousness upon the words. How it touches your heart how it activates your intuition in your core. Staying completely grounded this beautiful earth, recognizing and celebrating the one life, spirit's life, perfect life. Claiming in this moment that vibration, that quality, that feeling tone, and that experience of that life as my own because that life is our life. That we are connected by this force, this power for good, this power for life, this divine expression. Not something we earn, but something that we open to and reveal. 
And so this day, on this day of celebration, on this day of spiritual deepening, of this day of transformation, because I call forth into my awareness transformation at the deepest levels of my being. And if you are so inclined to join me in that, a simple yes is all that is required. Knowing that there's something moving in and through and as us, guiding, directing, nurturing, resourcing us in every good way, but only available if we welcome it, our participation, living from that, standing together in that, a, a, a tower of light and a beacon of wisdom. And so this day I surrender to that. I surrender my small thinking to the larger thinking. I put down my small ideas of, of spirit and God in my life to make room for the newness, the expansion and the possibility. I know that the blessings of this day continue to find their way into my awareness, the awareness of my heart and my core as well as my mind, that I live from all three centers of wisdom, grounding ourselves in this deep and beautiful connection with spirit, with this beautiful earth, with one another and with ourselves is a blessing beyond words. For this I give thanks and invite you to say with me, and so it is. Well, it's been a very, very eventful week, as we know, those of us that have been paying attention, and I uh, have certainly been touched by so much of the things that have visited upon our doorstep. So today I'm discussing or, or launching into a conversation about creating a culture of connection. And it's been inspired this last month by, I think, just an amazing woman uh, that's done work for the last 20 years on this. She started as a shame uh, investigator, wanted to understand shame, and she was very linear, and she wanted to measure it and figure out what's going on. And all of a sudden, and, and as time went by, the, the, the box that she was, was doing her research in kept expanding and expanding. I'm going to pull this back a little bit here. And so what she came to realize that she wasn't studying shame so much as she was realizing that there's the people that, that manage and operate at a higher level of, of uh, experience of life, uh, she would call wholehearted. And so the qualities of the, the methodology that allows people to, to manage their, their triggers, their shame triggers, allows people to be, live more wholeheartedly. And wholeheartedness is really a spiritual activity. So her research from all of that linear stuff, that whole, that whole uh, you know, um, intellectual processing brought her to the awareness that it's not just the head, it's the heart and the, and the, and the intuition as well. And so on the first slide, some of, I want to share with you some of the qualities of a wholeheartedness that, that, that these people share. One of them is that, that they, they get up in the mornings, as she said, and, they'll, and they just, despite what's going on in their lives, despite all the distractions, they'll simply announce... I'm enough. I'm enough. So they have the capacity to realize that life will have a lot of opportunities and we can spin into uh, different ideas about ourselves, but they always come back to this idea, I'm enough just as I am. That I don't need to achieve anything to know that how, uh, to stay connected. There's a deep abiding connection with that, that unseen realm. And that unseen realm, is, the deeper that is, is that, that allows and enhances the possibility of, of I'm enough. They also become very proficient at love and belonging. All of us have this inner drive to experience love, to nurture love, to, to expand the possibilities of love. And many times what we're, we're trained in or domesticated in are, are just small forms of love. 
And this sense of belonging, belonging to ourselves, to one another, to the world. And so I think one of the largest and most beautiful things that we can do is continue to nurture this ability of, of, of giving life to and cultivating self-love. Because when, when two people come together, because it's typically what we do in relationship, whether it be lovers or, or, or friends or whatever, is when two people come together, if the capacity to love is not, is not alive within the other individual, we can't give it to one another. We can't train one another into it. It's something that we cultivate on our own. And for the most of, most of us have had to find a new dic- dictionary of love. It's been the journey for many of us because what we got from our, our parents and our, our, our genealogy was a, was a small form of it. And they did the best they could. But there's always more to reveal. So wholehearted people understand the, the, the value of love. They nurture it within themselves, telling themselves they belong, that there's something unique and wonderful about us without, without tra- falling into the trap of comparison, which is the letting go of what other people think, which is the next idea. So this idea that if we measure our lives always by other people's responses, it's very limiting because people, people only give us what they are. They, they always, people always project on us what they're, where they are. And so that's a very, very interesting thing to look at. And how can we stand in that when people that we, we, we have close to us in our lives are giving us feedback that perhaps may be off a little bit? But the point is, once again, the wholehearted can listen to that and take it in and go, oh, thanks for sharing. Yeah, yeah, I'll look at that. But letting go of what other people think. They also have a gratitude practice. And these are just a few of the qualities. This, is just, this isn't the whole list, it's vast. Her, her body of work is incredible, the work that she's pulled together. But I, I pulled these out because they seem to fit nicely with what I wanted to, the direction I wanted to go in today with you. But the gratitude practices are not something about an attitude of gratitude. Well, I'm always grateful. Yeah, that's like saying, well, I'm always hungry. Yeah, means nothing. So having a, a, a practice in your life that, that actually activates that at a, at a kinesthetic level so that in your heart and in your gut, you're, you're, you're participating in gratitude, which means it could be announcing it. It could be speaking it out loud. It could be writing it down. It could be some tangible thing that you do that, that puts you into a state of, you know, when I do this with, my, with whatever it may be, it, it activates gratitude. Because then it becomes part of us. It moves into the deeper levels. That's why that, I love the, the, the uh, co-creation prayer, the physical prayer, the releasing prayer. Because we're doing something, our body becomes the prayer. And then, and then opting or making the choice of participating in being uncomfortable, discomfort over resentment. So mindfulness and awareness, having clear enough boundaries and having clear enough um, participation in our own beingness to realize that many times for many people, their form of uh, one of the adaptation strategies is, I will do what I don't want to do because I know it'll make you happy. Anybody ever done that? I had three people. See, none of you guys. This is amazing. I'll skip right over that one then. But, but people will come up and ask you to do things, and you may not want to do them. But, but so many of us have been domesticated and hardwired that, you know what? That person's feelings are more important than mine. That person's life and their request is more important than, than, than what I have going on in my life. And we've all done this. Brene Brown talks about the time that she was asked to make brownies. And she said, my plate was so full of other activities and I made them anyway. And she said, those brownies were so full of resentment and anger. She brought them to the bake sale. Someone said, would you make the 12 dozen brownies for the bake sale? And sure, yes. And she went, oh. And she said, so there she is baking brownies in resentment. Here's your brownies. It took me a lot of time. 
So, you know, and so who wants to eat a brownie baked in resentment, if you know what I mean? But it's such a wonderful example of how we, we well, if we don't please that person. And so she, she offers this strategy. She said, what if someone said to you, you go up and you ask somebody to do something, or someone asks you to do something, and you know it's just not going to work right now? And you say to them, you know what, thank you so much for asking me, but right now I just can't help you. And I want to help, so keep asking me. But at this moment, it's just, it's not going to work with all the other things I have going on. I mean, how would you feel about somebody that said that to you? Would you be angry? No. I mean, I, I admire somebody like that. They could say, hey, man, I'd really like to help you, but you know what? I'm going to be traveling, and I'm not going to have time to do this, and I really want to do it well. But keep asking me, because I want to be, I'd like to help. That's a beautiful way to be. Did your parents sit down with you and say, you know, when someone comes up to you and you don't have time to do it, how many of you got that coaching from your mom and your dad? Yeah, see, none of us. All those, you did. Okay, good for you. We'll talk later. Diane's sitting through the second service. She liked the first one so much. So thank you, Diane. Um, but, but, but so there's all these little practices that she talks about because what happens when we do things out of, out of guilt or, or uh, a sense of, of uh, we have to, it, creates, it triggers, there's a trigger uh, involved with shame. And when we're living from shame, it's just not a great place to, to uh, operate from. Saying no when it's appropriate and yes when we're excited and engaged. Something we really want to do. Man, oh yeah, I'm all over that. I will make that my priority. So we live in a, for the most part, in a culture of scarcity. So the next slide articulates this a bit, and it ties into some of the things that I want to talk about that happened this past week that touched all of our lives. So the culture of scarcity, number one, scarcity thrives in a shame-based culture. Scarcity thrives in shame-based cultures. So it looks like bullying. We know we have a problem with bullying on the planet. It looks, we see it in politics. I'm always amazed that as soon as, especially in, in Canada where you, I get the opposition party now, but somebody will make a decision and, and it's triggered with the opposition to comment on it. And many times I think, well, what would you guys do if you were in that position? I mean, some of this stuff is organic and, I'm, and it's all good. It's good to have the discourse. I'm not saying that, but sometimes it's, it just sounds like an attack. And I think, well, what's your solution? You know, I mean, I get it that you don't like that, but what would be your solution? I'd like to hear your solution, not so much your complaint. But so it, it creates that activity of you guys are doing something wrong. And I get that. But it's, it's part of our, you get it, it's part of our DNA as a culture. We hear it every day. And religion. You know, I mean, religion, oh my gosh. You know, here's the, there is so much shame in religion. Man, oh man, I was domesticated in an in a, in a environment where if you, if you made mistakes, it was eternal punishment. And very hot, from what I'm told. Very warm there. And so, you know, this whole idea that, ah, and, and of course, I was born with original sin. Oh, my gosh. You know, let me tiptoe over here. All these, these, these scarcity ideas. You're not enough. There's not enough. We're in trouble. I mean, what happened this week with, with things that happened in Ottawa? You know, it's easy to spin into this. Oh, my gosh, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. There's just nothing but crazy people out there. What is this all about? So it's the scarcity. And so to have some ideas and to share some ideas with you about how we manage this, because it's, it's, it's everywhere in our culture. And then personal attacks. Scarcity thrives in a culture of comparison. You know, you do something really great and all of a sudden someone says, well, you know, my, my, my cousin did that, but they doubled what you did and then they had this other, ex-. it's like, oh, thanks for sharing. 
I was all set to feel good about something. I was all set to step into some form of relief about what I'd accomplished. But now you've called my attention over here, how meagerly my accomplishment looks like. But I mean, there's all that stuff that, that can go on with us. And then s- scarcity loves and thrives in a culture of disengagement, isolation. So uh, very, three are very important things. Shame-based cultures, bullying, politics, religion, personal attacks, thrives in a culture of comparison, comparing ourselves to this and that. And then scarcity thrives in a culture of disengagement. We're not connected. So the next video, uh, a picture is a picture of Corporal Nathan Cirillo. And Nathan was a soldier that was standing in front of the war memorial with an unloaded gun, you know, carrying out the protocol, honoring all the people that have given their service and their lives to enjoy the freedoms that we have in Canada. And so his life was snuffed out. I'm just so, so, I was so touched by all the people that ran to help him. You know, the lady that was, that was leaning over him and whispering affirmations in his ear and thanking him and telling him he was loved as he was taking his last breaths. You know, he's a, he's a single dad, little four, I think five-year-old son, guy that rescues dogs. You know, just his whole life was about service, being connected to and honoring uh, this beautiful country and freedom and the best of what, you know, we, we have to offer the world in so many ways. Next picture is a picture of Warrant Officer Patrice Vincent, been in service to Canadian military for 24 years. Their family did his uh, memorial very privately. And the few comments that came out, you know, we don't know how we'll live without this this man in our lives. That he loved being of service. And so these things happen and we witness them. And as as a nation, all of our hearts are cracked open. Wholehearted people are able to have a way to process in a way that they can then live in the resilience. It's not that we don't care, but when we're wholehearted, we get this. It's, this is such a small portion of the world that these men that, that perform these atrocities. And we see it more and more now. And what it is, it's, it's young men from what I've read, and, I, you know, and I'm still processing this with you. But what, and so I got some great coaching last week. Never speak to things you're still processing. But I, what I realized was I can't, I don't have all the answers, but I can, I can mourn with you and I can speak about where I am in this. And so the incredible sorrow we feel when we see these things happen, it just cracks us open. And what wholehearted, healthy people, vulnerable and yet powerful do is they have the, the honest conversation and they talk about it. And what they'll do as well, as Brene Brown says, is if something is, that sucks happens, they, they say, this sucks. It's horrible. It's awful. But they don't stay stuck in it. They don't decide, okay, you know what? The world's a scary place, and that's my new definition based on this experience. And so there's a resentment that builds. Because resentment and hatred of what happened, it just adds the fuel to the fire. And, that's, that, and that's, this is serious spiritual practice, when we can shift our perspective and look at this and say, this happened and I do not stand for this. This is unacceptable. And how can I participate in the answer? How can I be part of the answer of moving forward? And so I'm still in that discovery with you, but I want to share some of the ideas. I think Brene Brown's work on, on shame, because what I know about these, these men that, that go out and do these horrific acts is, from what I've read, is they're loners, they're, they're not engaged, They don't have close friends. Some of them make up their own scenario in their heads. They they create a whole culture of of terrorism that they join that doesn't even exist except in their heads. 
So it suggests there's probably some mental illness for some. Some there's drug addiction involved. Some have been, and the majority have been, have had problems with law enforcement, have been arrested over a period of time. And then all of a sudden they seem to draw back in and all of a sudden they'll emerge and they'll, they'll, their whole life becomes about taking this cause on and, and, and fighting the, the status quo of what they were raised in because it's unacceptable to them. On and on and on. And I'm not trying to defend it. But what I'm saying is, when we are bullying one another, when we're not engaging in, in, in discourse that's meaningful, when we're not present with one another in love, when we're coming from resentment and anger, when we're coming from comparison, and we're not, when we're disengaged from one another, this is one of the outcroppings of this. I think it speaks powerfully and very insightfully into what is, is, can be. We have been given dominion and free will. But what happens with that is that we have to live with the consequences. And so all of us are living with those consequences right now. And how do we move forward? Locally this week, um, I went to a memorial yesterday for a young man who's uh, Reverend Connie Nissen's nephew, Michael McNeil. Michael just turned 22 years old, had the same birthday as I do, just celebrated his 22nd birthday. He was a young man downtown. There was a problem. Someone th- broke a window, broke into an apartment. Uh, he was staying overnight with a friend. They broke, broke in. Uh, he, then they, the, the perpetrators went across the street. Well, he followed them, and there was an argument, and he was stabbed to death. And what his father said at the memorial is there's a lack of trust in our culture that the police can take care of this. You know, the sensible thing now looking 2020 is always, but call the police and have them deal with it. Say, you know, this happened. But he, he was so proactive and so out there in the world and decided he was going to take this in, into his own hands and God bless him. The memorial talked you know, on and on about it. I didn't know him, but I knew him at the end of this memorial. Beautiful, beautiful young man. So this comes to visit as well. And then Barb Gobert is here on Wednesday night. We're here for a board meeting and all of a sudden we find out that Barb's daughter's boyfriend, father of her little baby, so Barb's great-granddaughter, uh, he passed away at the, the U of A hospital from an overdose of drugs. So another young man that was just starting to live his life. And so it's, it's been a week of this. It's like, wow, the wave of, of, of uh, tragedy and sorrow. And so, you know, if we, when we're in comparison and competition with one another, when you know, when, when there's the bullying going on and this di- and, and so the, the way that we domesticate, especially our men, you know, Brene Brown writes a story in, in, in this book at the end, the last chapter that inspired this talk today and, and she got up and a lot of her work has been geared towards women because God, you know, women have just carried so much of the shame for this culture and for men, this man came up to her after a, a, a talk and, he, and his wife came and, and, and she said, no, 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 go up and talk to him. And so she, he finally said, they talked for a little bit and he finally went up to Brene Brown and said, can I talk to you for a minute? And uh, she said, sure. And she said, well, what about men? What about men in shame? And she said, and, and, and she said, uh, she said, well, I don't know much about men in shame because I haven't done a lot of research on it. And he says, well, that's convenient. And she said, well, how convenient? And he said, because I got to tell you something. When I've shown up somewhere to be vulnerable as a man, I get my ass kicked. I get my ass kicked. And he, she said he started to cry. Because for, for men, we're, 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 we're domesticated that whatever you do, don't show any pain. Whatever you do, don't show any weakness. God forbid you would be vulnerable. See, because we don't understand what vulnerability is. When you're in touch with how you feel, 
there's, a, there's an empowerment that goes on. There's an authenticity that goes on because then you stand and you're, and you're processing with everyone else. You can stand in the, the winds of this, this shifting and changing that's going on and not be crushed and not spin into anger and resentment. And now they've, they've heard us. I mean, this has been going on for years and years and years. It goes back thousands of years. They hurt us, so we got to go hurt them. And, and it's, this, it's insidious. We see it in our youth. And we, and so we're domesticating, our, we're domesticating this culture. It doesn't work anymore. And I believe these things happen. I think we're shocked into this awareness by these experiences. I think in some ways these souls come here to, to wake us up and say, you've got to stop doing it this way. And so there's some information I want to share with you that I think is, is exciting and inspiring about how we, I can move forward. And I'll share it with you because this has come into my awareness and my sphere of influence. The next picture is a man by the name of Richard Rohr. He's a, he's a Franciscan priest, and I love his writings. I think he's a wonderful uh, uh, teacher, mentor, and facilitator. And he says, my scientific friends have come up with things like principles of uncertainty and dark holes. So that's the science community. They are willing to live and imagine hypotheses and theories. But many religious folks insist on answers that are always true, that we love closure, resolution, and clarity, while thinking that we are people of faith. Well, if everything is always true, that we always bring, tie everything up with a, in a nice bow, that we have closure with everything, that there's clarity with everything, who needs faith? Because we got all the answers. Phew, what do I need God for, man? I got it all handled. And so what he's saying is how very interesting that the, the word faith has come to mean its exact opposite. Faith does not mean certainty. It doesn't mean certitude. And what these young men are looking for, when we talk about love and belonging, when these perpetrators show up, they're looking for a place to stand in the world. So they don't measure up the, the way we're traditionally educated, most of them, and for a variety of reasons. And so the one path, and I'm going to show you a video in a little bit uh, that's brilliant that articulates some of this. The one path is the, the formal education path. And if we follow the formal education path all the way to the, the ultimate, you will end up being a university professor. That we have taken one, one pathway of education. We've put all our resources, as, as Ken Robbins will say in the video, we have strip mined everything for this one purpose. That you will be a university professor or something, some derivative of that. This is how we do education. When in fact, as he said, we have operated and educated ourselves as if that we, we, we train ourselves from the neck up. It's all about what we think. And it's all how smart we are and how fast we can process information. When in fact, what we know now in the neuroscience of leadership is that we have three capacities. We have three centers of intelligence. One is the head. It's always negative. One is the heart. One is the gut. And the more that we can incorporate all of it, and he'll speak to this as well in the video, the more fully orbed and the better chance we have of being authentic with one another, standing in our vulnerability and our power, processing things. Because part of what we get to do, and the reason I'm speaking to it today is because it needs to be addressed. That's what wholehearted people do. Because this is terrible. It's awful. It's depressing. It's sad. But what I also know is the more, the more I can give awareness to it and, and shift my perception on it, I can start to become the answer. And then my resiliency. See, what wholehearted people have is resiliency. You can have your heart broken and bounce back. That, that this one episode doesn't, and, and for these people's families, I'm sure it has. Their lives will never be the same. But to bounce back, this resiliency factor. Broke, my heart's broken, process, process, process. Mourn, 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 and I want to bounce back. 
because I want to live from that authentic place. I want to live from that, that vibrancy. And so as, as Richard Rohr is talking about the need for certainty in our lives, what Brene Brown says is that wholehearted people give up, the, give up the need, the pursuit of certainty. She's very good at definitions. She wrote a, de- the next slide is her definition of spirituality. Because there are a lot of people that go to church all the time that aren't spiritual. I grew up in a whole family of them. We were, we were um, gas station Catholics. We'd stop in for an hour and get filled up every week. And then we'd operate on that little gas, and, and then we'd putter. We usually have people push us back into the parking lot at the end because we were out of fuel at the end of the week. And then we'd get filled up one more time when we go out, and we'd be really holy for about 45, 50 minutes. And then we'd go into comparison, then we'd go into blame. And it was just what we did. Spirituality is a deeply held belief that we are connected to one another by a, a presence or force larger than all of us. I don't think anybody here would argue with that. There's something beyond this, it's a mystery. And so to, to do more spiritual work, more spiritual work is to understand that I'm going to surrender to that. I'm going to go there. I'm going to take my energy out of my head for a bit, go into my heart, go into my gut. I'm going to have a meditation practice where I create white noise in my life, where I'm not thinking and figuring and driven and driven and driven and blaming people and shaming people and those dirty bastards there and the son of a bitch is over there, and on and on and on that, that so many people do. But just calm down and, and understand we are eternal We've always been, we'll always be. We've chosen this experience so that we can deepen and expand the possibility of Spirit's presence and revelation on this planet. That's the purpose of your life. I would never do a workshop on discovering the purpose of your life because I just told it to you. It takes 10 seconds. Purpose of your life is wherever you are to be that open conduit of divine expression. Well, how can I do that if I'm always up in my head? Because I can't. And so this is what Richard Rohr is talking about. It's, it's, it's understanding there's a mystery to it. We don't need all the answers. Why do I need faith if, I, if there's a mystery to it? And to surrender to that and have enough and be, live close enough in spirit to watch it continue to unfold. And, and, and what am I guided to? What am I inspired by? Where am I called? And listen to that. A deeply held belief that we're connected to one another by a presence or a force larger than all of us. So I'm going to invite... Um, um, our video person to, to put this video up. This is, this is Ken Robinson. He's an Englishman, you'll tell right away. It's, it's a little uh, challenge to kind of dial into his, his uh, accent, but it's how schools kill creativity. It's the last four minutes of this beautiful, amazing talk that he gave, and I want to share it with you. Well, got to be there. Uh, it's really prompted by a conversation I had with a wonderful woman who may, most people have never heard of. She's called Gillian Lynn. Have you heard of her? Some have. She's a choreographer and everybody knows her work. She did Cats and Phantom of the Opera. She's wonderful. I used to be on the board of the Royal Ballet in England, as you can see. And uh, anyway, Julian and I had lunch one day. I said, how'd you get to be a dancer? And she said it was interesting. When she was at school, she was really hopeless. And the school in the 30s wrote to her parents and said, we think Gillian has a learning disorder. She couldn't concentrate. She was fidgeting. I think now they'd say she had ADHD. Wouldn't you? But this was the 1930s, and ADHD hadn't been invented, you know, at this point, so it wasn't an available condition, you know, people, people, people weren't aware they could have that. Anyway, she sent, went to see this, um, this specialist, so this oak-panelled room, and, and she was there with, uh, with her mother, and she was led and sat on this uh, chair at the end, and she sat on her hands for 20 minutes while this man talked to her mother about all the problems Gillian was having at school. And at the end of it, um, because she was disturbing people, her homework was always late and so on, a little kid of eight. In the end, uh, the, uh, 
and the doctor went and sat next to Julian and said, Julian, I've listened to all these things that your mother's told me. I need to speak to her privately. So she said, he, he said, wait here, we'll be back. We won't be very long. And, and, uh, and they went and left her. But as they went out the room, he turned on the radio that was sitting on his desk. And when they got out the room, he said to her mother, just stand and watch her. And um, the minute they left the room, she said she was on her feet, moving to the music. And they watched for a few minutes, and he turned to her mother, and he said, you know, Mrs. Lynn, Gillian isn't sick, she's a dancer. <laughs> Take her to a dance school. I said, what happened? He said, she did. I can't tell you so how wonderful it was. We walked in this room, and it was full of people like me. People who couldn't sit still. People who had to move to think. Who had to move to think. They did ballet, they did tap, they did jazz, they did modern, they did contemporary. She was eventually auditioned for the Royal Ballet School. She became a soloist, she had a wonderful career at the Royal Ballet. She eventually graduated from the Royal Ballet School, found her own company, the Julian Lynn Dance Company, met Andrew Lloyd Webber. She's been responsible for some of the most successful musical theatre productions in history. She's given pleasure to millions, and she's a multimillionaire. Somebody else might have put on medication and told her to calm down. <laughs> now, I think... What I think it comes to is this. Al Gore spoke uh, the other night about ecology and the revolution that was triggered um, by Rachel Carson. I believe our only hope for the future is to adopt a new conception of human ecology, one in which we start to reconstitute our conception of the richness of human capacity. Our education system has mined our minds in the way that we strip-mined the earth for a particular commodity, and for the future it won't serve us. We have to rethink the fundamental principles on which we're educating our children. There was a wonderful quote by Jonas Salk who said, if, you were to, uh, if all the insects were to disappear from the earth, uh, within 50 years all life on earth would end. If all human beings disappeared from the earth, within 50 years all forms of life would flourish. And he's right. What Ted celebrates is the gift of the human imagination. We have to be careful now that we use this gift wisely and that we avert some of the scenarios that we've talked about. And the only way we'll do it is by seeing our creative capacities for the richness they are and seeing our children for the hope that they are. And our task is to educate their whole being so they can face this future. By the way, we may not see this future, but they will. And our job is to help them make something of it. Thank you very much. Yeah. yeah, it's just a beautiful, a beautiful talk. Ken Robinson, uh, how education kills creativity. It's, it's 20 minutes. It's amazing. But it really, it's when we're, we're here, we, we decide as individuals and collectively where we go next. And it's not to deny the, the, the bad things that happen. There are people out there in the world that are totally lost, that feel so disconnected and disengaged that they can actually take up a, a weapon and kill a stranger. But it is the rare, rare exception. And I think at the, the depths of it unfolding, it's also a call for us, as he said, to, to rethink how we nurture and educate and for their future and, and to, to, to educate the totality I love the story of the dancer. When the, the, beautiful, the beautiful therapist has said, there's nothing wrong with her. She's a dancer. You've got to take her to dance school. 
Rather than, but, but now, uh, you know, uh, there's, there's things that happen that we, if we don't fit into the, that narrow framework of, well, you're gonna, we're going to work you up to university professor, um, then it's, it's like, oh, you're in trouble. You know, you're really going to struggle. Well, here's a woman that became this, this incredible choreographer that has gifted and blessed all of our lives. And so it's, it's, it's stepping outside that box. There's a wonderful quote from Brene Brown on this next slide. It's how, how we shift our culture. Because this is our opportunity. This is the business that we can be about individually. And it's good for us to do it anyway, wherever it takes us. But number one is that social change is a million acts of kindness. She talks about the subversive movement for social change. And if we want to be a, uh, involved in that, it's a million acts of kindness. That to be an agent of change, it has to be alive in our neighborhoods. It has to be alive in our relationships, to be wholehearted. And it's a practice to read, you know, I, I can't give you all the, the signposts of it, but to be, to be authentic, to be vulnerable and yet powerful with one another, to be present with one another, to feel what we feel, process, cry together, laugh together. It's a totality of, of uh, a mosaic of, of uh, experiences. And we, all of us need to learn that. Because I don't think, very few of us got that growing up. But this is what I believe we're called to do. Bring awareness to how we use shame in comparison with ourselves and with others. When we find ourselves comparing one another, just say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going there. Because all that does is spin me into this this shame cycle that I want to end. Be creative. Talking about the dancer. Creativity is so important to have creativity in our lives. Last week I talked about play. Well, creativity is a doorway to play. She, and, and Brene Brown said that, you know, this was so foreign to her, she finally realized she needed to, to find a way to play. And she went and took a, a gourd, you know, the, the, the uh, melons, the hard melons, they're called a gourd. And she's in Houston, so it was down there in the uh, south of the U.S. And, and she went and there was a class on, on painting gourds from this world-famous gourd painter. And her mom went and her daughter went. And her mom's painting away and doing all sorts of things. And her daughter's painting away. And she said she sat there for the first hour sweating bullets because she couldn't even put paint on it. And the teacher finally walked over and said, uh-huh. She said, you just need to pick up the brush and start. And she said she had so much creativity shame, she couldn't do it. She's measured this. She said 85% of us have creativity shame. 85% of us. And what happens, I remember as a kid, they, they, when I was in uh, school, and they bring out the finger paints. We started with finger paints, and every time they brought out finger paints, I would do a garden hose. I just loved sticking my finger in the paint and going like this, and before you know it, the whole page was covered with my fingerprint. And I said, it's a garden hose. And she'd walk over, and she'd look at it, and walk away. And it was like right away, like, oh my gosh, I can't do this, because Jennifer Shimbers was over on the other side of class, and she actually did a horse that looked like a horse. It's like, oh my God. Look at her. I'm hooped. 85% of us have, have creativity scars. And creativity is one, of the, is one of these great wholehearted activities where we connect with something beyond us, whatever it may be. And it's your picture to paint or it's your song to learn how to play or a musical instrument or whatever it may be. And you don't have to be world-class. It just opens us up to a whole different vibration. But it gets trained out of us. What happens in grade four and five is they start to judge it. You know, you start to get the, 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 the judging for the art. And that really clamps it down. 
So by the time people, my children at that time, grade five or grade six, very few of them think they're creative. And they say right now, there was a big article, Brene Brown talks about a big headline on Time Magazine that said there was a dearth of, uh, a lack of creativity and innovation in the United States. Because it's not nurtured and it's not supported. What value is there? You want to be a dancer? Huh. You're going to be a singer? Huh. You know, you need, to, you need to go to university and be a professor or a lawyer or a doctor. And all those things are great. And some people are hardwired for that. And they're called to that. But not everybody. And stay engaged. So important to stay engaged. With one another, with life. One of the outstanding characteristics of all these young men that have perpetrated these atrocities in the United States and here, there was a shooting in Washington State last week as well. The young man that killed those children at Sandy Hook School, it goes on and on and on and on. They isolate. Isolate. And they go into their heads into this fantasy. And I don't know the answers. I don't know the, I don't know the, the antidotes for it. But I do know that jumping into more anger and frustration and becoming scared fearful and angry and shutting down withdrawing is not the answer it's having the courage to realize you know what this has happened and I want to be part of the answer I want to I want the opportunity for the generations to come behind us to be able to to not have to recreate the whole wheel but to realize you know what you have gifts and talents so to find that the totality of education for these children so that they can live and share their gifts Brene Brown said last slide I want to share with you we cultivate, this is her definition of love. We cultivate love when we allow our most vulnerable and powerful selves to be deeply seen and known and when we honor the spiritual connection that grows from trust, respect, kindness, and affection. And when, we, and, and when we're authentic with ourselves, when we nurture that within ourselves, it's much richer. She talks a bit in, a, in a, her presentation that that when two people come together, that they can't, you know, that you can't create or give another person love. You can only cultivate love between you. And so the more that our, our own uh, capacity to do that within ourselves, which is, you know, the ability to say, I'm enough. Yeah, there's things I'd like to improve on. There's places I'd like to go, people I want to see. But I'm enough. Enough with the shame and the blame, putting myself down. Enough with pleasing everybody else and not pleasing myself. Because we can do both. But it's managing and it's the dexterity. It's becoming agile with these things so that we live a life that's vital and vibrant. And people get that. So what I'm going to invite us to do right now, if you're so inclined, is let's just move into a, a minute of silence for these soldiers that have given their lives, these lives that have been taken early. Let's open our hearts in the wholeheartedness of this moment. Breathing into your body, bringing that energy into your heart, to your core. Anchoring yourself to this earth. And what I know in this beautiful moment, we offer our compassion and love to all of those affected by this tragedy across Canada, across the world. Families, victims, perpetrators, everyone whose heart's been broken open. 
we know that each person as well as ourselves, has everything we need to realize, to process in a healthy, powerful way, to activate our resilience when it's appropriate, to allow these episodes and these experiences to enhance our motivation and momentum of our own spiritual evolution, that these deaths are not wasted, that good arises, we demand it, we impress it upon this infinite intelligence, that we stand together as a community of light, of power, of wholeness and vulnerability. Allowing that authentic conversation within and without. So in offering our love, offering our, our knowing, our certainty that the mystery of life is alive and well within everyone's sphere of influence and consciousness and that that power and presence is operating in the most beautiful, powerful, informative way possible for ourselves and everyone we think of. This is my knowing. I stand as a family of light in this awareness and together we say, and so it is. And so it is.